Hello everyone, welcome to some ornithological chat. I hope you've all had a nice Christmas break. I know that I have, but I am ready now to get the next podcast out and I'm joined today by Ryan Irvin. So say hello Ryan, tell us who you are, where you are, uh, where you are. Uh, people might be interested to hear where you've been as well recently and then uh, tell us why you're here. Right, so I'm Ryan Irvin. I, uh, I'm a freelance ornithologist at the moment. I, I'm based, at the moment, I'm based in southwest Cornwall, but I've just came back from the Falkland Islands, where I've been working for a couple of years, mainly with seabirds. And then, before that, I'm from Aberdeenshire, so I cut my teeth birding in Aberdeenshire, and then moved around a bit and spent some time in Norfolk as well, where I, I really got into patch birding and, and developed my birding quite a bit when I was there. So patch bird, and that's what we're here to talk about today. Um, knowing sort of, I haven't followed you around, but you, you know, we've been friends for a long time. So I wish I had followed you around because you've been to some quite nice places. But you know, from everywhere you've been, I, I, I've noticed that you sort of take on a patch. You were very keen on your patch in Norfolk, for example, and you've got you're just in the sort of process of setting up a new patch in Cornwall. What is it about patch birding that you love so much? I, I think it's a, it's a combination of things, but for me, it's it just makes everyday birding interesting. You know, there's I, there's very few days I can go in the patch where I don't see something new. And it may be something totally mundane to the majority of people, but because it's your patch. I, for example, when I was in Norfolk, I had no fresh water. So when I saw a mute swan, I get very, very excited. Yeah. So it just made every day. Uh, there was all, and because you know the patch well, you notice changes every day. So yeah, you just, for me, I just never got bored. Well, it's exactly the same for me. I, I can totally relate to those things. To me, it adds a, a dimension, a, an extra dimension of excitement. So you have the genuine rarities if you're lucky, but then you have all of these patch mm-hmm. rarities. So, like, coot is the classic one that people talk about, which I guess would be a rarity for you in Norfolk as well with with no fresh water. Other examples of that sort of thing for me are things like tufted duck. You know, there's a lock down the road. You can go and see tufted duck really easily, but it's a a once-a-year thing on the coast here. Um, But also this sort of long, slow acquisition of of knowledge and understanding of the patch. That's a real draw for me. So it's interesting that, you know, we're, we're sort of totally the same in that regard. We're, we're hooked in by the by the same things. Although it has to be said that we do try and keep a patch that is at least has some rarity potential as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be this. I mean, I have so much admiration for people who have inland patches and things like that. The dedication they have, yeah. because they probably don't have the same motivation of oh, there might be a rarity. Yeah. Whereas on the coast, you you can be happy with the, the the unusual for patch. Yeah. But you always have them back in mind that a rarity might turn up, and uh, yeah. So yeah, I always try and choose. And now my new patch in Southwest Cornwall is totally different to my old one. Yeah. Uh, and it's going to take quite a bit of getting used to. The fa- my favourite parts of of patch birding in Norfolk was like Vismig. And the sea watching, but not 
for seabirds because there wasn't actually many. It was wildfowl movements yeah, and yeah. And I'm not going to have much or any of that in West Cornwall. So, but you will have American passerines and Wilson's petrels, and I mean, I'm not going to feel sorry for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm hoping. I'm hoping I'll have those. But uh, yeah, the the cover in those valleys is, is pretty immense. Yeah, I bet. Well, I mean, I, I know that part of the world sort of. It's it feels very similar to Northwest France. I mean, there's only a channel in between them. And, yeah, the density of the cover, is it does take quite a lot of getting used to. So I like a patch, you like a patch, and obviously lots of other people out there like a patch. And what we're really here to talk about is a single patchwork challenge. So tell us a, a wee bit about what that is and where it's come from. So patchwork challenge is a friendly competition uh, we set up 10 years ago. Uh, in either a pub or a, a pizza establishment. <laughs> it's never quite remembered correctly, but yeah. Probably a pub then. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was a combination of a couple different competitions that were going on at the time. One was just a few of us from university where we were doing points per bird based on rarity. And then there was another one that was more on comparative scores. Uh, so how how you how well you've done on one patch compared to sorry how well you've done on your patch compared to how well you did in previous years? Yeah, and I think yeah. it was a once it was established was it a three year rolling average? So we decided to combine both both rules, mm-hmm. and it was it just I think when we set it up we were hoping we'd get a twenty thirty people involved, and then within about two months. It was up to two, three hundred, and then five hundred. So f- five hundred people at the most. I think. I think the the, the maximum at the the peak it was up to five hundred. Uh-huh. Um. So yeah, so it's it's just a, a friendly competition because so many people got, got involved. We had regional leagues mm-hmm. um, to try and make it a bit fairer for uh, the inland people to have a bit more yeah. of a competition yeah. again, rather than trying to compete against Spurn or Cly. So I think that would be, if I was thinking about getting involved with the Patriot Challenge, that might be the thing that made me reluctant. You know, my patch, if I lived in the middle of Manchester, I would think, well, you know, how can I compete with someone whose patch is at Minsmere? Or, you know, I noticed that this year there's somebody on Fair Isle. How, how is that sort of all taken care of? So that's where the comparative score comes in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you this year score... 75 points or 70 species, 75 points, something like that. But next year you score, you see a few more species, a few more points, you end up with 80, you're ending up with, oh, my maths isn't great, but that's going to be about a, <laughs> your comparative score would be about 110%. Yeah. Whereas the guy in Minsmere might score 300 points, but next year 295. All of a sudden his comparative score is 99, so you've yeah. actually hammered him. Yeah. You're, uh, Yes. Okay, so so the, the comparative score really levels the playing field. It's yes. so much of co- in in comparing one patch to another, but it also sort of really focuses the essence of patchwork challenge. From my, which, from my understanding, is that it's a competition really against yourself. Yeah, it's so to that, do it one year and then another year and then a year after that. So that's what we. That's how I I see it as well. It's the the leagues and everything is is mm-hmm. a bit of fun. Yeah. Uh, and it's a bit of, it creates a nice bit of friendly rivalry and social media and things like that. But primarily, it was always, it, it just gave me more incentive to go out. 
my classic example was I think it was the second year it was running. It was a horrible day. It was, I remember it was a Sunday, so I wasn't at work, and it was a horrible pouring down day. But it was Easterlies, but it was so wet. But I decided, well, I have to go out. You know, I've still got some species I might find. And one of the first birds I found was Richard's pipit, just in the long grass in the pouring rain. <laughs> and before Patchwork Challenge, I might not have went out on those horrible conditions. So the 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 element of competition with yourself, especially. Gives you that extra bit of motivation, and you know I take part in Patriot Challenge, and I see all the, I sort of follow all the uh, the stuff that happens on social media. You do see people say that a lot that it is a motivation for them to get out, and uh, you know that must be quite gratifying knowing that you're you've created something that gives people that impetus to go out and do something that's good for their bodies, good for their minds, good for you know sort of local birding, all the rest of it. That yeah. must be quite rewarding. Yeah, it was, and when at its peak, when social media was, well, I say social media, when Twitter was was really um, uh, busy with with Patchwork Challenge, there was people saying, you know, they they had changes in their life where they couldn't go out. It was whether it was twitching or just going further afield, and Patchwork gave, Challenge gave them this focus mm. to just walk out the house and go birding, and it was incredible the, the amount of birds that were being found where you wouldn't expect I think the so in, in the previous existence 10 years ago we had some prizes and for best find I think the best find was in the middle of Yorkshire wasn't it Blythe's Pippet ah yeah there was a Blythe's Pippet on Wakefield Johnny, Johnny Holiday's patch in the middle of Wakefield in the middle of winter yeah yeah, yeah. and so it was things like that that was I think it kind of inspired more people to you didn't have to go to the coast. You didn't have to go to the hotspots. Yeah, yeah. So, while we're talking about rarities, then, can, are there any other really good finds that have, have been that have turned up on Patchwork Challenge over oh, the years? Yeah, there was endless one. I'm, I'm trying to remember now. So the very first month, I remember we were wondering because we thought winter it was going to be a slow burner, and mm-hmm. I think it was in the first week someone in Out Hebdies sent us a photo of a. A white gyre falcon yeah. sat on the chimney, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think that just inspired more people to get involved. Once that went on the on the blog and on Twitter, yeah. there was. I mean, we used to do monthly roundups for bird guys and for the blog of all the rarities, and it was incredible just the amount there were. And for some strange reason, my brain is not remembering. Well, I, luckily for you, I've done a bit of research, so I can remember some of them. So. It, a couple of the standout ones for me were semi-palmated plover, which was I think like the third record at the time. That was down in the south. That coast. was down. Uh, I'm going to say Hampshire, was it? Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah. And then there was a morning dove on rum. That's right. Yeah. Um, and then not to forget inland. Was there a pied wheat here somewhere inland? Which is a really big find, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was a the Godwit in Somerset. Hudsonian Godwit. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, who's to who's to say these birds may well have been found anyway? I suspect some of them probably probably will have been, but it, it, undoubtedly some of the birds that were found during Patchwork Challenge were found because of Patchwork Challenge, and I think that that's you know, and because there's such a sort of presence on Twitter, that really does help other birders to get some motivation from from what's going on. So. You talked about a previous life. Give me a sort of a, a very brief history of Patchwork Challenge from 
the starting point ten years ago to now? So yeah, so ten years ago, we, um, we, I'd say we, we, we set it, we decided to start setting it up um, in the pub, or and we we didn't expect it to explode, so we weren't quite prepared for for the the level of interest. So we hastily set up a blog. We started writing monthly reports for each league. So every you know we we created. I think there was about 16 leagues in the end. Uh, sort of geographical. Geographical like, leagues. Yeah. Um, and then there was the green league for anyone who who just walked, didn't use any mm. uh, transport. And then, but it was it was labour intensive, so we got a few more volunteers involved. Uh, but it, it was a lot of work. Yeah. So after, I think it was after two or three years, we, we set up, one of my friends helped set up a, a website where it could be all automated. But the problem with that ended up being that people lost the engagement with it, which mm. I think was a huge part of Patrick Jones. So it just kind of died to death. And also the the creators, we, we moved away and uh, had other things in life. So we weren't there to kind of push it as much either. Like, um, so this time, when we decided, we, we got the phone calls uh to decide whether we were going to resurrect for the tenth anniversary, we we had to find a way that would suit everyone. So what we've decided to do is we 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 just don't have the time or energy to uh, to do the blog and all the posts. But what we've came up with is we're going to do um, YouTube video once a month, just talking about the leagues, um, talking about the best finds. There'll be so. One of the contentious issues of Patrick Challenge has always been the point scoring. Okay. People always moan about, you know, uh, one point for, for a bird and that's common in England but rare in Scotland. Yeah. So, but trying to get a scoring system for the whole country to beat the suit is quite difficult. So we've kept it national. But this time, we're going to give people the chance to claim bonus points for species that they feel. So all they have to do is hashtag... Court of Appeal. Court of I've appeal. done a lot of research. Court of Appeal, <laughs> that's right. Uh, and then we will discuss it in the YouTube video every month mm-hmm. and it'll be a committee decision, uh, a yay or nay, whether you get the bonus points. And, and will this person be invited to sort of a, a, be part of the video and to make their case and to... If they so desire, they yeah. can. They can join in and, and, and tell us why they deserve the extra points. Because there will be cases, mm-hmm. you know. I think the very f- we were worried when the f- first time happened because the lesser spotted woodpecker was found in Shetland. Fortunately, not in a patch. Because <laughs> yeah. if it had, yeah. two points for a, a Shetland lesser spotted woodpecker would have been a... Two points for a first for Scotland, no less. I can't remember whether it, whether it was officially a first for Scotland then or whether the the, the old records from the 50s were was, was still, still stood at the time. But... Totally agree. It is. It must be impossible to come up with something that is applicable, but you know, to Silly and to Shetland. But I think the the score sheet that you've got is a really good shot at it. Um, but given these, because of what we were talking about earlier on, this sort of the idea of there being rarities and also patch rarities, this gives people an opportunity to get a little bit of a, a, a few more points for something that's given them a massive sense of excitement. You know, and your lesser spotted woodpecker in Shetland is a great example of where the 
score sheet doesn't quite cut the mustard. Um, and I think that certainly as somebody who would be watching these these videos on YouTube, that sounds like a really nice addition to what's to what's going on. Okay, so whether you're an established patch birder or not, or you're just interested in the idea, how do you go about taking part, and what what do you need basically? Well, so take part. If you look on Twitter at Patch Birding, uh, there is a, a thread of tweets pinned that will kind of talk you through uh, step by step. Mm-hmm. Um, there will be there is also a video just kind of letting you know if you're a bit confused about the sign up sheet and the score sheet. But it's all pretty basic. Once you've download, once you've entered your patch on the the sign up sheet, all you have to do is open the sheet. Write your line in, mm. and you don't have to save. It'll save automatically. You don't have to change anything. It's it's nice and easy. And then you download your score sheet, and you just start adding, uh, just typing in the, the species you see um, as they accumulate through the year. As you accumulate through, the year, yeah, yeah. And so then, if, if I go and say a rook today, and then say a rook tomorrow, I don't write. Rook no, today. no, just the yeah. one, one, yeah. once uh, for each species, yeah. and then. So after that, you just need to pick your patch. Uh, Here's a question. What is a patch? A patch is somewhere where you bird watch all the time. You know, that's basically all I can say. For I've been lucky, um, and, and so have you, that our patch we just walk out the door. Mm-hmm. And and although actually my Can I just say there is an element of design in that for me. It's not it's not pure luck. Don't tell my other half that, but <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, well same same my old patch. This one in, in Cornwall, I'm a couple of miles inland and I could have packed just picked a patch but I decided that I want my house in the patch so, yeah, yeah. so instead of having just a nice bit of coastal uh, area I now have a long thin strip that goes from my house to the coast um, nice. and actually the valley with the farmland has is, is proved my favourite part so far So well that's going to be where the, the woodchuck strikes and that sort of thing turn up you know that, that you yeah. know, if you're there long enough that's inevitable isn't it yeah, well hopefully yeah yeah that's a, a glaring uh, a mission from my British list. So. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, crikes, mate. I've, even I've seen a woodchat yeah. in Britain. <laughs> I, I was a mile away from one last time I lived in Cornwall and, and couldn't be bothered. Fair so. enough. So, it, yeah. It, take, it takes all sorts. And, you know, a, pa- a patch is a sort of... It's quite constrained, isn't it? Yeah, right. so we've we've limited it to three kilometres squared. Mm-hmm. I think I've said that the right, right way round. Yeah. And I think we decided that... Well, we probably decided that because that was the size of the patch we were working at the time. But also, people ask why that size. For me, it's a nice size that you can kind of walk around and and cover the majority of the best parts mm-hmm. in a morning. So it's not a, you don't need a huge time constraint to cover the whole patch or most of the patch. So you can have the Saturday morning off or the Sunday morning or something like that, yeah. and you feel like you've. You've covered the patch, so that was the reason for that size. So, are you just thinking about that when my daughter's asleep at nap time in the afternoon? That gives me an hour and a half, and it, I don't quite get to cover the patch as much as I'd like, but I can get around, and it it's perfect for that sort of thing. So I can totally I can totally see where you're coming from, and this idea that you can walk across it as well it's it's a single entity, isn't it? You can't have a little corner on the coast and then another little chunk at the top of a mountain and then another little chunk in Shetland. and So it has to be the same entity. Yeah, it has to be one and preferably a bit of a block. Yeah. Uh, in the previous times, 
Well, I mean, we're we're not very strict on the rules. Uh, <laughs> we we kind of trust people, and there was a few patches where they would have a nice big bit of coast and then a thin line going about three or four miles inland to a wetland, and it just didn't feel quite right. And so we're trying to make sure people don't do that now and just have a nice. Uh, kind of block that they, they work regularly. And if you want to include the wetland, you can have more than one patch. I mean, that's, can... that is the perfect solution, isn't it? Instead of instead of trying to squeeze everything into this one three-kilometre square, three-square-kilometres, I get confused with that as well, you just have a different patch. There was, I looked on the score sheet, the, the sign-up sheet the other day, and like, somebody has, like, four patches on there. And that's totally fine. The more, the merrier. Yeah, so when... The, when I when it first started, I, I had my patch where I lived, but I used to work next to the beach in Great Yarmouth, and I walked it every day. Mm. So it was a tiny; it was on it was probably less than one kilometre square. So, but I just created a patch because I bird watched it every day for one hour and found some nice rarities. By, and I think again, I think that was a patchwork challenge. Um, I probably wouldn't have walked that beach because it wasn't very pleasant, a lot of it. <laughs> um, but I did it every day and, and you know found things like Roynek, Redback Shrike yeah. in the middle yeah. of Great Yarmouth. So nice. Just yeah, so just do a patch where you bird watch a lot, and yeah. if you go a few places, you can have a few patches. Yeah. And and the and the the lovely thing is that it doesn't matter how small it is or whether it's a field in the middle of nowhere. The idea that you maybe birding there for a few years and then you can start developing cumulative scores so you can you're in competition against yourself that applies to every patch no matter how good or bad or big or small it is no no exactly yeah and actually the the smaller the more probably less diverse in habitat probably the the, the harder it'll be to to compete against yourself but the more rewarding i guess when those interesting birds turn up exactly yeah so in case we haven't convinced anyone, or some people aren't convinced. Are there any other benefits to patch birding? So we've talked about the sort of the personal benefits, but what 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 does birding get out of it, for example? So I, I would suppose I, I mean it's it's data collection a lot. So we had a we we worked with BirdTrack in the past mm-hmm. and encouraged everyone to put all the data into there. So and that's something you would still. Encouraged. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, yeah. so and uh, bird track eBird put it, put your data in there, um, and uh, uh, there was a large percentage at one point of data going in, or maybe not a large percentage, but it was a sizable yeah. amount of data that was going into bird track for a while and was coming from Patrick Challenge. So yeah, so that is kind of what we're hoping for that people, and because it won't be the hotspots, because when you look at data collection of places. Uh, like BirdTrack and eBird, they're very much centred on the hotspots. Mm. Whereas Bird uh, Patchwork Challenge, there's lots of patches that aren't hotspots. Um, so all of a sudden, the the data that's been collected will actually spread across the country a lot so more. The idea is that hopefully, you know, in, every now and again, someone will instead of going to look for displaying goshawks in March or whatever. They'll, because they're doing Patrick Challenge, they'll stay local and they'll collect some data locally that might not have been collected otherwise. Yeah, and for all they know, they you know they might end up having displaying golf songs. Well, yeah, it, not me. Well, no, <laughs> or, or me. <laughs> no. The other, the other advantage is that, obviously not everyone can do this, but uh, the other advantage is, for me at least, that I, mean, I burn absolutely no carbon whatsoever 
patch birding. And that is the vast majority of the birding that I do. And I suspect that the patch birding approach would certainly reduce a lot of birders' carbon footprints. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, again, when I was birding, uh, well, yeah, my patch birding, yeah, I don't use the car either. So it's, uh, yeah, it's that. that's probably the biggest benefit now. Yeah. And yeah, the more people that do that, the better it is for the birds and the planet in general. Brilliant. Well, thanks very much for that. We've got a solid 24 minutes on, on patch birding. So it could be a lot more. <laughs> it could be a lot more. Um, we're going to go listen to some bird noises now. I'll, actually, I'll take a nomination from you. So what we do is we, we try and sort of have a little slot where we compare some similar bird sounds or sounds from similar birds. We try and keep it sort of topical in terms of, you know, for the, something for the winter. So off the top of your head, have you got a nomination for me to do? Well, I, we were talking about this earlier, and after yesterday, there was a huge arrival on the coast here of uh, thrushes. Okay. So, yeah, it would be quite good. Maybe flight calls of flight song calls. thrush, red wing, missile thrush, field uh, fear. And I'll throw a ring oozle in there. Yeah, ring oozle, well. yeah, of yeah. course. Brilliant, thanks very much. So, we'll be, we'll be back after the bird noises to talk about birding in general. So, see you in a moment. Well, Ryan's asked for some thrush calls, so here we go. Thrushes are probably not migrating at this time of year, but they can move around in response to hard weather. And there's some evidence that the waxwings over here in Scotland recently are starting to drift back towards the east, with ringed birds turning up in, in Denmark now. So they may well be on the move too, if, if uh, food is scarce. And these are some of the calls you can listen out for. First of all, I'm going to compare redwing and uh, blackbird calls. They're quite similar calls. They're both quite high-pitched, occupying a pretty similar frequency range. The key differences to listen out for are the blackbird has more of a sort of a whispering quality. The redwing call is quite sort of abrupt, quite a hard zeep, zeep, like that, higher pitched than I can do it, obviously. And the blackbird call sounds more like a someone like whispering in your ear so it tsp, tsp, and it has that sort of sibilant quality as well so first you'll hear blackbird and then you'll hear redwing and then you'll hear the two calls sort of side by side a couple of times as well see if you can hear the difference Next, we'll have one for later in the year, for the spring or perhaps for the autumn. Field fair and ring oozle have pretty similar calls. They're both sort of comprised of a small number, three or four chat 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 sounds. And they can be quite difficult to tell apart. Very difficult, in fact. But listen out for these differences. First of all, the field fairs 
chat-a-chack is a very dry sound. So each individual note is quite dry, just like the sound of hitting a stone against another stone. And all of the notes sound the same. Whereas with ring oozle, it's a much richer noise. There's a lot more going on if you look at the sonograms. And you can see, you can hear that difference too. And also, it has a, a, a chuckling tone, and each note tends to rise a bit. So what you get is a ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-
one one and a half thousand Red Wings <laughs> had arrived that morning <laughs> that that night in the field, and I never saw the bird again. And so it's, it's nine or ten years ago, and it's it's the one bird that I always think about when it got away. Yeah, but I think all birders have one or some that got away. It wouldn't be quite the, as exciting, I think, if there wasn't that sort of element of tension. You know, when you find or when I find a rare bird, there's a lot of different emotions involved, but one of them is fear, I guess is the best way to describe it. That Panic. that it clears off before you've had a chance to sort of fully establish what it is or get the photographs that you might need to sort of get it past the rarities committee or whatever. I'm not sure I'd have had the What's the word I'm looking for? Presence of mind to think, oh, I'll come back for this in the morning. <laughs> it, it literally was getting... So, I, did, I mean, I did walk up the field, mm-hmm. but it was getting so dark yeah. that I couldn't see anything more than, say, five metres away flying up. Yeah, okay. So I, I was kind of worried I was going to end up flushing it away. So yeah, I thought, yeah. it, it, was set, it looked settled-ish. It obviously had been feeding in the field. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, I thought, it'll be there in the morning. And, I mean, if I had another hour of light... You'd have, you'd have known what it was. Yeah. yeah. And it's, yeah, it, it is funny because it is, I mean, you all get birds where you think, oh, that might have been, there was a strike in, uh, on my patch in Norfolk. I saw a silhouette mm-hmm. and it dived down to, to feed, I think, and never saw it again. And all I had was this black silhouette. Yeah. So. You wonder what that was. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's, there's not uh, not too many that I really focus on. Yeah, uh, that that one uh, in Shetland is the one that <laughs> I don't think it's healthy to dwell on them, for sure. But you know, we all we all have them. And now you live in Cornwall. I mean, the chances of you finally, eventually finding an American passerine, because some of us do have American passerine finds on our list. Uh, you know, the, the the chances are greatly improved in Cornwall. So good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, he says, through, through gritted teeth. So while we're on about rarities, um, what's your prediction for the next first for Scotland? So you can you can give as much detail as you want here, where it is, when it's going to be, who's going to find it, all that sort of nonsense. Well, uh, I had been warned about this question, and I ashamedly didn't know the Scottish list, so I had to <laughs> quickly Google it last night. And uh, I came up with Eastern Crown Warbler. Mm-hmm. That's uh, it. It's a strong contender, I think. I, I'm surprised it hasn't. But then there's so much of the Scottish coast underwatched. Yes. Yeah. So I wonder how many have been missed. Um, uh, some, undoubtedly. Yeah. And because I used to patch girdle nests when I was at university, I'm going to make you happy and say girdle nests. Mm-hmm. That would Prob- make me happy. Probably oh, the. Is the sycamore still there? The sycamore is still there, but now, so, well, you've, you have seen Nick Bay several years, five years ago when we had all those Siberian chiffchaffs there. When that is that is a proper woodland now. Yeah. yeah. So if there is an Eastern Crown Warbler at Girdle Ness, please let it be in the one sycamore rather than in the woodland in Nick Bay. Cause that... <laughs> yeah, the, the, the magic sycamore used to be great when mm. I was at university. It's, it's seen so many birds in there. And, um, so we'll say there. Yeah. And, of course... Time I, of year? Uh, it's going to be October. Mid, of course. Mid to late October. Everything's yeah. going to be a bit later now. So yeah. I'm going to say, yeah, 
Twenty third, the famous twenty third of okay. October. You'll you light shine Shetland for months. I tend to be in France at that time of year. Oh well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Andrew Whitehouse will find it. So. <laughs> okay, I mean, good for him. He puts the effort in. And thanks through gritted teeth. Yeah. <laughs> no, not at all. He does put the effort in, and he's a good birder, and he finds a lot of birds. So, I mean, if it is going to be at Girdleness, it probably is going to be him who finds it. To be honest. Um, Right, now that we've finished having a dig at one another, uh, <laughs> what's the what's the best piece of... Yeah, here's a more friendly question. What's the best piece of birding advice you've ever been given? Um, that's... I think... I had quite a lot when I was growing up, and but I think the best piece of advice I've had was about 10 years ago. It's when I was first birding in well, yeah, my patch in Norfolk. Mm-hmm. And someone just kind of told me, just said to me, he says, Don't don't give up. Don't take shortcuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's so many days when you think it's quiet and you do your, your usual route and there's normally a quiet part that you should do and you may be a bit tired, you've not seen much, mm-hmm. and you you look at it and you go, oh, I won't bother today. I'd rather have a cup of tea or Yeah. And he told me he told me don't, because that's where the bird will be. So yeah. from that day, I started, whenever I thought, oh, I can't be bothered looking at that bit, I stopped myself and forced myself to go. Yeah. And I actually found a few scarcity, nothing nothing rare, but good good, good patch birds and things, yeah. just yeah. by forcing myself to, uh, to go that run. extra yard. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're not the first person who said that. So I think it was David Steele on the first podcast said the same and it's certainly from a sort of a rarity finding point of view it does seem to be you know time in the field is such a sort of a critical factor in rarity finding that this this idea of just carrying on spending a bit longer checking one final place ultimately it will deliver yeah so yeah and i mean that's i think that's what people mm -hmm. uh, especially starting birding Mm -hmm. kind of need to i think social media doesn't help where it's so instant, and people think, "Oh, they've been out bird watching for for an hour and found a rarity," but they don't realise most patch birders on the coast that I knew anyway would be out for hours and hours, tens of hours every week, mm. and you may not find a single rarity in that week. Yeah. You know, it takes hundreds of hours of effort yeah. to that. So, if you're out for for two hours on a Saturday, don't get despondent if you don't find something. But I've noticed that Twitter, especially, which has a pretty pretty big burning community, you scroll through Twitter and everyone, you know, and this is totally fair enough, everyone's saying, oh, I went here and I saw this and it was great, or I've just back from having a look at this, you know, twitching this bird. And it's like a it's like a highlights reel. And you go you go out to Girdle Ness, which is a good site with a lot of potential, and think, well, you know, I saw some ring plovers. <laughs> that was nice. But it doesn't really compare. So... I know you've had, to, you might have had problems sort of coming up with an answer to this question. Would you put social media or that element of social media in a birding room one hundred and one, or do you have a more controversial and more editable answer to give me? Well, no, actually, it, it is quite amusing because I was sitting there thinking, how do I not alienate half the birding? But social media was. <laughs> What I was going to put in room one hundred and one, especially the part that, um, yeah. So I I used to be on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I am again now, but that was mainly for my Falklands 
it was the only social media where I could download things with the incredibly slow Wi-Fi <laughs> there. But before that, I just got I got kind of tired of the negativity. Well, it's not so much negativity, but there was a lot of people where uh, kind of say there's so many tweets saying, "Oh, I had a crap day's birding," and it's all I think it is because they went on Twitter, seen everyone twitching or just photographing all these great rare birds. Yeah. And then they realised, well, I didn't see anything rare. So they've tweeted, I had a crap day. And for me, every day you're out birding is a good day. You could be sat in the office or something like that. So it kind of, and for one story, one prominent Norfolk birder direct messaged me asking me to stop being so positive in my (laughs) tweets because it was annoying people. Yeah. But I, I, I genuinely think there is something in that. You know, I, I'm a big fan of Twitter, and I think, you know, from a Patriot Challenge point of view, the whole competition is essentially sort of, the whole conversation is had through Twitter, so it's not necessarily a completely negative thing. But in the spring and the autumn, and all these rare birds are turning up, and all your Twitter feed is just endless photos of nice birds, and you've been out and seen nothing. I can see why it doesn't get me down, but I can see why it gets people down for sure i think if they're if you're not a keen patcher where where it doesn't and we're we're both not twitchers Mm. so um i can't think of nothing worse than traveling for three or four hours and then sit standing in a crowd to look at a bird that they then look at 200 photos of in twitter but that's what other people enjoy so that's why i didn't put twitching on room 101 (laughs) (laughs) well that's that's fair enough Okay, well, we'll before you we'll, before you say anything controversial about twitching, we'll we'll move on, and then I think this is the last the last burning question, but it's one I like to talk about. Tell me your biggest burning blunder, the biggest sort of public blunder you've ever made, or if you don't have one that sticks out, tell me all of the little ones. <laughs> so, well, yeah, well, there was one time at university we were uh, in Meikle Lock, and I I remember. Um, Shouting snow goose because there was a big flock of uh, I don't know if you were there, were you? Possibly. Big flock of uh, pink feet geese, and uh-huh. of course there's slight competitive edge, a bunch of students uh, birding, and um, there was a white bird in the middle of the geese, and I said snow goose, and it was a herringle. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but that's that's one of those sort of uh, the shooting from the hip sort of things, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, that happens all the time. I think. And I, I guess we're similar. We do a lot of birding by ourselves. My, I'm always correcting myself. Oh, you know, yeah. my, my brain says something, and then my eyes look at the bird and think, "Thank God there was nobody here to to witness that." And I think you don't really realise that just how often you correct yourself. Um, yeah, because no one else is there, and you you kind of just pass it through your brain. But um, yeah, I mean, there was other. Yeah, I, I suppose it's. It is just shooting from the hip, rather, and I think that's experience makes you learn. You don't have to shout quickly, and you can take your time. Um, I think when I was younger, talking about sort of birding in a group, I always felt that there was some sort of sense of, oh, I took some pride in being the first person to see or identify the bird, and the, the longer I've birded, you know, the more I realise. Being first isn't that important. Being correct is where it's at. And I must admit, when I, when I, because as you said earlier, most of my birding is alone. But when I am out birding with friends, I kind of, 
I probably relax more and probably not quite as intense in my birding. So I'm probably not going to find it first. Well, yeah, too much chatting going on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah. So that was that. I mean, there's another. This it's not really a blunder, but it it made me learn um, quite a bit. So I found a wagtail in East Norfolk, mm-hmm. and they called, and I thought it was a citrine wagtail. Uh, and we saw it. In, I got a photo of it briefly on the ground, but poor photos. Then we saw it fly. I phoned a friend. He came down. We saw it flying. Heard it calling. And we both thought citrine wagtail. This is before the time any of us had sound recorders or anything. Yeah, yeah. So I put out news instantly. Well, really? once we were... <laughs> reasonably <laughs> interesting for people. And I got home and looked at my photos and it's yellow undertail covers. Okay. And obviously it wasn't citrine wagtail. And that's... So it's not a massive blunder because I, I sent it to a couple of people and they thought, well, back then again, you couldn't really do it, but it was probably Eastern yellow wagtail. Yeah, yeah. But what it made me learn was... Not to put, not to rush putting news out. There's yeah. no point in rushing and then making a mistake. Yeah. If I had, but at that time, I felt the pressure that you had to put news out as soon as you. Mm-hmm. Had. But then I realised that actually, once you're certain, put news out is yeah. what I think. But I think that you know, there's certainly I know the local birders around here would be pleased if I was to put a message out saying, "I've had a wagtail. I think it's either citrine or." or eastern yellow wagtail, but I'm really struggling to, to pin it down. That's okay. But what you're saying is, and, and I agree, don't just sort of jump to the conclusion and then, you know, don't be gung-ho, gung-ho about it. Take your time and, and try and make sure you get yeah. it right if you're going to do that. Yeah, because I think I've been getting a bit of stick on Twitter for not putting news out. For the, the moment it happened. Yeah, well, pretty well, <laughs> yes. Yeah, as, as the, the old... Same was back then was a real time tweeting. Real time tweeting. Just um, just had a just had a chaffinch. <laughs> just another chaffinch. <laughs> yeah, so I, I kind of let that influence the way I bird it. Mm-hmm. And then I think that that instance made me totally reevaluate how I was going to go about birding yeah. and be a lot more careful. Careful is really important. I do most of my birding by myself, but occasionally I spend some time birding with, you know, people who are really, really good birders, people who, you know, are on or have been on British Birds Rarities Committee or other rarities committees, so people who really know their stuff. And they, my anticipation before I met those people would be that they would be some sort of, like, zen birding masters. But actually, they're just normal switched-on people with... You know, very clear thinking, most of them, but with a really sort of thorough approach. And that's that was a real eye-opener for me, because I thought, you know, I could never be one of those people. And I'm not claiming to be one of those people, now. But the door to being like that wasn't remembering the bird book or having incredible eyesight or hearing. It was just having the approach, the being thorough, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, I mean, I remember uh, in Shetland finding a... A sandpiper. Uh, one uh, friend who's just incredibly found so many BBs came along, and I thought he was just going to identify it straight away. Yeah, but we sat and watched it for three hours yeah. before he was happy to put a name to it. But I had expected him to turn up and just 
saying, oh, you idiot. Of course it is. <laughs> but no, he, he, and again, that was probably another great learning curve for me was that he made sure we got every single feature. Yeah. Not just yeah. some of them. He made sure we saw everything. And that included Underwing. And, yeah. You yeah. know, and, and I, that's when I realised that actually, yeah, I'm not doing things because I always thought I was too slow. But I thought, when I saw that, I thought, actually, this isn't. It's, it's an, yeah, I, the same person, I know who you're talking about, the same person was on the phone when I phoned him up when I found the first ever Blaise Reed Robber that I found back in the day when they were still rare and sort of, they were still a BB and they were still, there was still a little bit of an enigma about the ID and, you know, he, I, I called him because I knew he'd found a couple on Shetland and he helped me through the ID. But he also said, oh, I'm, I'm actually, I'm burning with someone else uh, who has found a few BB a few blind reads. So let's hear what he has to say about it as well. You know, this idea that all of this input was was valuable and all of these features were useful and you should be thorough. But, hey, I don't know everything. Let's hear what the other guy's got to say as well, you know? Yeah. I, I found that quite inspiring, really. I found it a real eye-opener. Um, maybe that should have been the, be- the best advice. Actually, <laughs> it probably should have been, shouldn't it? Yes. I mean, yeah, because it's the same when I was in East Norfolk. There was a group of us mm. who, there was just there was four of us who were just bird watched hard and long, you know, put a lot of effort in. And whenever anything was found, it, it was, although you probably knew it, you, you had a discussion yeah. to make sure that you hadn't made a mistake. So, I, yeah, I find that invaluable to to be able to share, and and you never got the great thing about that was you never got mocked for saying, "Well, of course it is." You, yeah. Instead, yeah. they knew the situation you were in, and uh, and you could have a proper discussion and and come to the right conclusion. There's some real time. some real learning to be had there. Now, if you and I are going to get to Gurnalness before you've got to go away, we're going to have to draw this to a close. So, if you can briefly tell me what bird. You'd like to be reincarnated as, and why? I like to be reincarnated as. I always say my favourite birds are shearwaters. So it used to be Manx shearwater, but having lived in the Falklands, I'm going to say sooty shearwater. Mm-hmm. So I can see most of the Atlantic, and I can have my summer up here, or up in the North Hemisphere, and then have a nice summer in the Falklands. Perpetual summer. Have, have a bit of. Have a bit of time with the penguins and mm-hmm. the albatross. You might even fly very distantly past Girdleness one day. Well, that's it, yeah. <laughs> yep. I hope not. <laughs> right, well, on that note, let's draw a line under all this. Thanks very much for coming and talking to us about Patriot Challenge. Ryan's talked about the pinned tweet, so if you go to the podcast notes, I'm going to put a link to the, the pinned tweet and all the other Patriot Challenge stuff there. What I'm also going to put a link to is a really great page that... Uh, is on the Clyde Birding website that basically helps people who aren't on Twitter to get involved with patch birding. So if you're not involved with Twitter, or if you and if you just want to get involved with patch birding and, and patchwork challenge, have a look at the podcast notes and follow the links there. Now Ryan and I are going to go and see no birds at Girdle Ness and uh, tweet about it. <laughs> Even though the weather forecast is telling us it's still definitely winter for the birds. The spring is on the way. A lot of birds are starting to sing now. Robins and blackbirds, lots of tits starting to sing these days, wrens as well. But I want to just play two songs that you might want to listen out for next time you're out and about. Birds that sing very early in the winter. 
first we're going to hear the dipper, and then we're going to hear a missile thrush. Obviously, for a dipper, the habitat where you hear the birds singing is going to be a dead giveaway for, for what the bird may be. People have confused them for acrocephalus warblers in the past, so things like reed warbler or some of the rarer ones. They have that sort of rapid, harsh delivery, and there's some repetition in there as well, so I can see where that, that sort of comparison comes from. But there aren't any acrocephalus warblers in Scotland in February, and they're certainly not singing. So if you're walking along a stream or a river and you hear something like that, then the chances are it's a dipper. After that, we're going to hear missile thrush. Missile thrush is a great example of something that it sings very early in the spring. The song has a real blackbird-like quality, but it doesn't reach any of the high notes. So when a blackbird sings, each phrase starts low and then ends with a high flourish. Missile thrushes don't have that high flourish. They just sing a series of low-frequency, melancholic-sounding phrases. They go on for a long time, and they never really change the pace. They never really leap about in the frequencies like other species do. Listen out for that in the recording, and see if you can hear missile thrush singing next time you're out and about. You have been listening to some ornithological chat, the podcast brought to you by the Scottish Ornithologists Club or SOC by the SOC if you are pushed for time. Thanks very much to Ryan for coming along and talking to us about patchwork challenge and patch birding and sooty shearwaters and other people finding major rarities on my local patch. I'm sure he enjoyed saying that at, at, at the very least. I'd like to thank Zeno Canto again, of course, for supplying hundreds and thousands of recordings for people like me to use for things like this. The individual recorders of the dipper and the missile thrush and some other 
recordings that I used are in the podcast notes. So thanks to them. Thanks again to Zeno Cantor for collating such a useful resource. Please do consider joining the SOC. We do do a lot. Our journal is excellent. Uh, I do get paid to say that, but I would say it anyway. Our website is excellent. Do have a look around there. We have some really, really useful resources. And it's all for a good cause as well. We do have digital memberships, which is quite a new thing if you're interested in receiving a journal digitally. So have a look at the options. Have a look at some back issues of the journal and have a look around the website to see what you think. And Happy New Year as well, and good birding.